You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. It is a massive, massive liability that countries still need to get their arms around. And what is this going to do to the cost of running a business? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben covers a settlement between the ACLU and Clearview AI. I discuss some tech giants rallying behind a proposed New York privacy bill. And later in the show, my conversation with Bill Tolson. He's VP of eDiscovery at Archive360. We're discussing compliance fatigue. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we got some good stories to share this week. Uh, Why don't you start things off for us? Sure. So I got the big one this week uh, using a New York Times article uh, entitled Clearview AI Settles Suit and Agrees to Limit Sales of Facial Recognition Database. Hmm. So we've talked about Clearview AI. It is the facial recognition software maker. They sell their services to law enforcement agencies across the country, but also prior to the settlement to private entities. Hmm. They scrape people's profiles from social media sites and have a searchable database where you can recognize people by their faces. Right. Uh, So there is a uh, biometric privacy law in the state of Illinois. It is the only such law across the country. And the ACLU filed suit in Illinois state court to stop Clearview AI from uh, selling this facial recognition data. Hmm. This lawsuit had been pending for a couple of years, and they agreed just recently on a settlement uh, as long as the judge in Illinois agrees to sign off on it, which once there's a settlement, that is generally a a formality. Hmm. Um, The judge almost always signs off. Okay. And as a result of the settlement, Clearview AI will no longer be selling its data to private entities. It will still be able to uh, make to, to give the data to law enforcement at both the state uh, and federal level, local, mm. state, and federal level, actually. Mm. Uh, so it's still going to be available to governments, but with only minor exceptions, it is no longer going to be available to the private sector. Mm. So this is a major blow to, of course, the bottom line of this company and its CEO. It's a New York-based company. Uh, they have obviously a very significant financial interest in being able to sell this software to private organizations who can use it for advertising purposes oh. uh, or any other type of purpose to help 
uh, identify particular particular users, uh, to document trends on these social media sites and, and match them up with facial recognition technology. Hmm. Uh, but it's not just Illinois where this type of software was being was problematic in a legal sense. So there's a uh, UK law that uh, prohibits this type of data collection. Uh, there is a uh, law in Canada, Australia, parts of the European Union, where you can pay fines for selling this type of biometric data because it would violate privacy laws. Hmm. So it was getting more and more untenable for Clearview AI to have a business model where they were selling this data to private organizations. And because of the settlement, even though technically it's only effective in the state of Illinois, because the state of Illinois is the only one with this biometric data privacy law, right. it will apply across the country. I mean, uh, they've okay. agreed as part of hmm. this settlement to stop selling data to private companies hmm. across the country. Uh, as to not run afoul of the Illinois law, but also as a side effect of that, uh, to have a 50-state ban on this type of uh, this type of data brokerage, hmm. I, I suppose. Hmm. So, uh, Clearview AI, there's still there are still a couple of ways for them to make money beyond selling their services to law enforcement departments. There's an exception in the Illinois law for financial institutions, so they'll still be able to sell to those. Uh, but they're certainly going to be more limited than they would have been. So I think this is a major win for the civil liberties advocates at uh, the ACLU. And this is why you file this type of lawsuit is you you hope to pressure a company like Clearview AI into settling. And that's what they've done here. Now, I, I've seen, uh, I don't know, recently that uh, Clearview said in their own press releases and, and so on that that they were pivoting towards trying to get most of their revenue from these government sales anyway. Is that, do you, I mean, I, I suppose you could read that as being maybe trying to get ahead of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where they're going to have to make most of their money. Now, I mm. get, I would guess that there's still a lot of money in it from these uh, public sector organizations. Local police departments, I mean, there are thousands of them across the country, selling them to federal government agencies, not just the FBI and law enforcement agencies, but immigration services, potentially the IRS, um, organizations that could make use of facial recognition data. Uh, and then you have state police departments uh, for things like tra traffic enforcement, uh, interstate criminal activity, those types of things. So it's still going to be a, of great use to these governmental organizations. I don't think Clearview is going to go out of business just because they they will have this market in the public sector. Mm -hmm. I just think they're going to be severely limited in their ceiling uh, in terms of how much money they can ultimately make because they are now being shut out of the private sector. Hmm. Uh, what do you make of Illinois carving out an exception for financial companies? Is that do we suspect that's so that financial companies can use these tools to try to track down people who are you know deadbeats? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's exactly what it is. I yeah. don't know what the reasons are that Illinois or their state legislatures introduced this carve-out. I suspect it's for collecting on debts. Mm. Uh, if there is a financial organization that's, uh, you know, trying to collect something from an individual who has not paid a bill uh, or is delinquent on a loan, hasn't paid a mortgage, and they're unable to find or identify this person— 
you could certainly use facial recognition to try and catch them either a, a branch or anywhere else where there's some type of video surveillance. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, you know, in terms of the policy behind it, I don't know why it's such a great idea to exempt financial organizations. <laughs> uh, my guess is that this is they the, have the money to pay the lobbyists. Right. I mean, I think that's exactly what happened <laughs> right, is right. they wanted a tool to catch uh, people who are delinquent or behind on payments. Right. And lobbyists are powerful enough that if you can get money uh, in their pockets and get in their ear, they can uh, effectuate some of these changes to legislation. Hmm. Uh, and certainly that's going to be a help to Clearview AI's bottom line. I mean, to be shut out of the private sector, but to still have a potential market among financial institutions, not a bad place to be. There are a lot of financial institutions in this country. Uh, they have a lot of money, and they have a lot of incentive to identify people who are delinquent on payments. Mm-hmm. So there's certainly going to be no shortage of opportunity for for Clearview AI. They've probably determined as part of whatever business analysis they've done under the CEO, that they can survive as a company selling to these financial institutions and selling to public sector agencies. If they tried to continue to sell to other entities in the private sector, they'd risk being held civilly liable, and that could take away a huge chunk of their profits. Mm. Because they came uh, to the settlement with the ACLU, they will not be held liable for any of their previous activities. So they're not admitting liability in this case. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. All they have to do is pay the attorney's fees, which to them is is pocket change. I mean, it, <laughs> it's uh, an amount that's just very insignificant to them in the grand scheme of things. Hmm. Uh, so I think they come out of this with a, a really clear path to being a profitable company. Uh, It certainly hurts that they're losing out on a a lot of these private sector markets, but I think they've made the calculation that they can survive and thrive and not subject themselves to civil liability in Illinois or anywhere else where there's going to be uh, legal restrictions on the sale of biometric data. Hmm. Now, is the ACLU uh, crowing about this, getting everything that they wanted? They they are. Uh, they are saying this is a win for the most va- uh, vulnerable people in Illinois and mm. across the country. Uh, I think they, particularly the immigration branches of the ACLU, are particularly proud of this decision. Mm. Um, they have a lot of clients. Uh, they mention a lot of Latina clients who are undocumented. They have low levels of IT or social media literacy. They don't understand how technology can be used against them. Mm-hmm. And even though this is still going to be available to public sector entities, this will limit uh, the profligation of this data across the internet. So it's going to be advantageous uh, to people who will ultimately be hurt by biometric data being out there. Right, uh, right. So, so you they, got stalkers and, and domestic violence victims and things like that who have an interest in not having this readily available to anybody. Exactly. And I should also mention, they they say in this article that even though Clearview AI still has the ability legally uh, to sell or or to market their database to U.S. banks and financial institutions, their CEO has stated that they're not going to do that, at least in the short term. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one caveat, not to throw in the name of our podcast <laughs> there, uh, to this decision. The other one is that Clearview... While they can't sell data now to these private organizations, uh, they will be able to sell their facial recognition algorithm, 
um, without the database of images. Hmm. So the algorithm itself helps match people's faces to any database that the customer, so whether that's a private organization or an agency, provides. So the algorithm itself could be very profitable. Right, right. So I think from Clearview AI's perspective, when you combine the algorithm, you combine the public sector agencies, and then potentially, at least in the longer term, these financial institutions, that's a lot of money that uh, can still go into your coffers, and it's just not worth it to pursue sales to, to uh, private organizations any longer mm-hmm. when you can disclaim liability as part of the settlement. Interesting. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from a TechCrunch. This is an article written by Zach Whitaker. It's titled, Silicon Valley Rallies Behind New York Ban on Geofence and Keyword Search Warrants. So uh, this story is about... Um, a coalition of uh, some of the big names in tech, including Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo, and they have thrown their support behind a bill that is uh, making its way through the New York legislature. This is uh, New York Assembly Bill A84A, the Reverse Location Search Prohibition Act, which uh, prohibits the use of reverse location and reverse keyword searches. This is something we've talked about before, Ben. Yeah, so we've done an analysis of these keyword search warrants and these geofence warrants. Uh, They've become more ubiquitous over the past several years. So for a geofence warrant, you're trying to get information on all of the devices that were in a particular area at the time a crime was committed or an incident took place. Uh, And this runs afoul, at least to the principles of the Fourth Amendment, Hmm. because there isn't any particularity to these searches. You don't have probable cause that a single person committed a crime— you're really getting a dragnet of devices and then doing investigative work from there. Uh, So even though there's not clarity in our court system as to the constitutionality of these geofence searches, I think clearly this this is a thematic offense or uh, an offense against the values of our Fourth Amendment. Hmm. The same can be said for these keyword search warrants. So anybody who searched for a particular uh, term within some time frame related to a crime. So... Anybody who searched for how to stab somebody in the back <laughs> in a particular right. uh, geographic location <laughs> right. right before stabbing, right? Uh, you can get information on all of the users who use that keyword search term. And again, there's a lack of particularity there. You don't have any possible inkling or information that a particular individual did that search. Uh, so you are collecting an undue amount of data from people who are completely innocent, Mm -hmm. uh, who you have no evidence have participated in any criminal activity. Hmm. So there are currently no state laws on the book in any of our 50 states banning geofence warrants or uh, keyword search warrants. So New York State would be the first. Hmm. So it's interesting that these tech companies, probably not entirely for altruistic reasons, are getting behind uh, this piece of legislation. Uh, I'll note that this piece of legislation has not moved. So it was introduced at the beginning of this calendar year, and it's still stuck in uh, the New York Assembly Committee. Mm-hmm. So you think this is an attempt to maybe nudge it, give it a little a little oomph? Yeah, and that certainly might help. Knowing what I know about state legislatures, it generally takes two or three years for these types of controversial bills to pass. You kind of have to throw an idea out there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be refined or perfected. You 
kind of want to test the water, see what the organized opposition is going to be, uh, see whether there's the political will for it. My guess is that's what's happening here. This is the the first time this legislation has been proposed. Maybe we'll see no bite at the apple this year, but over the next couple of years, legislators will be more eager to take action, especially now that you have so many geofence warrants and keyword search warrants. And from the perspective of these big tech companies, uh, and they're a part of this group called Reform Government Surveillance, Mm -hmm. a group that was set up in Silicon Valley in response to the Snowden disclosures, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, in 2013. The reason it's of interest to them is they don't want to have to go on these fishing expeditions all of the time to get geofence data or keyword search data. It is burdensome to them. Right. uh, And it also potentially could have reputational effects among its users. If users know that by using Google Maps, they're going to subject themselves to geofence warrants, uh, that might lead them to not use Google Maps. Right, right. uh, Or to try and find a service that where that data would not be available, hmm. where you get the same type of functionality. Uh, so this isn't altruistic. Uh, there is interest in these big tech companies and cutting down on the number of these warrants. Uh, but it's certainly interesting to see. I mean, these are the biggest of the big, big tech companies. Amazon, Apple, Dropbox, Evernote, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Snap, Twitter, Yahoo, and Zoom. Oh, yeah. So a who's who of the major players in Silicon Valley. Right. Help me understand the pecking order here. So if something like this makes its way through the New York Assembly, right? So let's say Mm -hmm. New York makes this a law. Mm -hmm. What does that do to the Fed's ability to ask for this sort of stuff? So federal law could uh, preempt state law if the federal government chooses to occupy the field. Hmm. Uh, So if they pass a regulation that occupies this very specific space in our legal landscape— so it's related to geofence warrants or related to keyword search warrants. The federal law would generally preempt that state law because the federal constitution is the supreme law of the land. Okay. Uh, it's unlikely that the federal government will pass a law banning this type of uh, this type of data collection anytime soon. One because it's Congress and they're largely dysfunctional. Right. Uh, two. I don't know if there's a political a- uh, appetite for nationwide legislation of the scope, particularly when the federal agencies will come to Congress and say, we want to be able to have access to geofence warrants because if there's an event like the Boston Marathon bombing where there's a terrorist attack and it's under federal jurisdiction, it would be very helpful for them to figure out which cell phones were in the proximity uh, during the, during that particular time. Okay, Even so, something like the January 6th insurrection, yeah. they used geofence warrants there. It's extreme. It's a, a very helpful tool for federal law enforcement okay. uh, agencies. But just for my own understanding here, would the, would the feds need some sort of enabling legislation or are they enabled by default? Is, does their ability to override the state legislation exist by default Or would they need enabling legislation that specifically says, hey, we're overriding this state legislation? That's a great question. It depends on where the search is taking place. So if the geofence, Hmm. this New York state law would ban geofence warrants within the boundaries of New York state and as it relates to keyword searches of IP addresses located in New York state. Okay. So without an explicit bill preempting that, 
the federal government uh, would not be able to stop New York from taking this action. Okay. So within the boundaries of New York State, uh, we know if this law were to be enacted, there would be a ban, at least among New York State agencies or federal agencies operating within the state of New York on uh-huh. obtaining these warrants from uh, from judges. Okay. So New York would be out of bounds. Would be out of bounds. Okay. Uh, the remaining 49 states, unless they enacted their own version of this legislation, uh, it would be completely inbounds. I see. Unless go- uh, the federal government passed legislation. Okay. Then there's a more complicated question about uh, if there's not a direct conflict, but there's some intersection in, in as to what the state has done, what the federal government has done, which law applies in, in which given uh, situation. That's way into the legal weeds. And oh, goody. <laughs> I am not going to uh, bore you with the minutia uh, of, of that question. Right. All right. No, well, that's helpful. That, that definitely helps my understanding of that. All right. Well, again, that article comes from uh, TechCrunch, written by Zach Whitaker. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like for us to discuss on the show, you can send it to us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bill Tolson. He is the VP of eDiscovery at an organization called Archive360, and we were discussing compliance fatigue. Here's my conversation with Bill Tolson. There have been numerous you know, privacy regulations around the world for many, many, many years. Very few people actually paid attention to them, and, and very few countries actually enforced them that much. Now, with, with the introduction of the uh, EU's uh, GDPR privacy regulation, that, that became, and that was in 2018 when it became active. Um, and that, that, was, that is a data privacy slash security law that, that basically includes protecting data across all 27, 28 EU countries. So it's it's one one big data security authority that protects the vast majority of Europe uh, around uh, around data privacy and and data security, and that and the the reason why that one really kind of kicked off this this newest 
kind of uh, environment of of lots of privacy laws being introduced was number one. It was it was across the entire EU, and it had a lot of very specific requirements in it. But it was also a global law, um, meaning that I let's say so let's say I'm a citizen in France, and uh, and a company in the United States, you know, on their website offers. To let me download a white paper if I give them my you know name and and email and you know some other general information. Basically, uh, what that means is is even that EU law, even though I'm a company in the United States, I'm subject to that law. I'm subject to treating that EU citizen's data in a very specific manner. And if that data is is breached or or mishandled or you know, whatever, then even if I'm sitting in the United States, that EU law can affect me uh, as a company. And that that's one of the things that many people, in fact, I was just doing another uh, webinar on this couple, I don't know, half an hour ago. And, and that's one of the things that every single one of these privacy bills uh, and laws around the world, but also, and I'll give you some stats here in a minute on, on the United States, they're all global, and meaning that, you know, if, uh, if a company in South Africa collects my data here in, in Colorado and that their data is breached in South Africa, they are subject to the Colorado Privacy Act. Same with all of them. Uh, so the, this, this global reach of, of these privacy laws is what really has, has, uh, uh, surprised lots of organizations uh, and so forth, and really made added a lot more liability to the whole idea of collecting and utilizing personally identifiable information. And so, why did the U.S. not follow suit with something at the federal level? Why do you suppose we've seen all of the activity at the state level? You know, I I, I how to I I, <laughs> I hate to uh, to sound uh, you know kind of anti-federal uh, uh, government, but they just, they just can't get their act together. Um, mm. unlike, unlike the EU and, you know, many other countries around the world have, have developed countrywide privacy laws as well. Brazil, China, uh, India's in the, in, the, in the point of passing one. Uh, I would say two-thirds to three-quarters of all the countries uh, in, on the globe have some form of data privacy now. By the way, Canada does have some, but they're trying to upgrade it right now, and they're having a little bit of problem getting it through the Canadian Parliament. But it'll it'll probably get through by the end of this year. But the 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 U.S. Federal Congress um, has had a a difficult time coming to you know a meeting of the minds as to what the various rights should be. Now, all of the state laws uh, that uh, state uh, bills. And laws. There are actually four past privacy laws in the United States right now for uh, California, Virginia, Colorado, and Utah. Just last week, they all use versions of the the GDPR rights. You know, the right to deletion, the right to uh, the right for me to access any personally identifiable information that a company might be holding, the right you know to have data deleted. Uh, that you don't want to be used for special purposes. They all use versions of most of these things. Um, so they, many of the bills are built on parts of, of the GDPR, but the, the federal uh, government in the United States just 
you know, with what's been going on with the Senate and the House, they have not gotten been able to get to the point for years to to really agree on what those basic rights are. And and you really need to agree on those basic rights. I mean, there there are, boy, I think there are probably more than 10, 10 privacy bills. No, maybe 18 privacy bills in the U.S. Congress right now. Only about two of them really approach GDPR-like uh, capabilities. One is from Senator Gillibrand in New York, and one is from uh, Senator Moran, I think, in Kansas. But they, they won't make it out of committee, as the, uh, committee either. So I, I was just talking to an expert literally two hours ago, and I asked him the question, when do you think a federal superseding law is going to be in place in the United States? And, and it needs to be superseding so that you can not worry about eventually the 50 state laws. And, mm. and they don't think it's going to be there for another four to six years. So where does that leave organizations? You know, I'm, I'm a business owner here in the U.S., and this is something I'm concerned about. I, I want to do my part to uh, protect the, the privacy of the folks making use of my services. How do I navigate this? Well, and, and this is this is the kind of the big point here is, is that when you have, you know, I think there's 196, 197, you know, distinct countries on the globe, but then you got, you know, the... Canada has various provinces and they have their various laws in the United States. Over the next several years, you're going to have upwards of 50 specific laws. The problem is going to be the complexity of any company anywhere being able to, number one, follow what all of these hundreds of laws are and, and being able to comply with them. Because, you know, one of the things that you look at is, let's just take the, the United States right now. Uh, there, there are currently 33 state privacy bills in the various state legislators around uh, legislatures or in the company country, um, and it, in what amounts to about 18 states. So there are numerous, you know, bills in in single states and those kinds of things. The problem is going to be over the next couple of years, uh, and it already occurs, but over the next couple of years is they they are not exact carbon copies of each other. Uh, so some include these rights, others include most of those rights, but some other ones, they all define things differently. What's a data controller versus a data processor? What is sensitive data versus personally identifiable information? And they slightly differ. You know, what are the exemptions? Um, you know, what companies are, are subject to the laws and which ones aren't? What kind of industries are? You know, usually they exempt you know, government agencies, they always exempt themselves. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, colleges, nonprofits, those kinds of things, but they're not all the same. So what this means is, say, in two years, a company is going to be looking at this and saying, well, see, like any company, we collect client data. You know, we, we you know, offer a white paper to download if they, you know, give us some information and stuff. That's all, that's all personally identifiable information. So if I get a data subject access request, which is a right that they are all going to have. It means mm. I, as, a, I, as a, a citizen, can contact any company and ask them, what, what of my data have you collected? And they have to respond in a certain amount of time, whether it be 15 days or 30 days, so, which means they have to know where all that data is, number one, and they can't, can't miss any of it. But then they have to figure out what rights does this guy have based on the state or country they live in, and how am I going to answer that? So you, mm. you could be looking at, at variations in, in the hundreds of, of, of things that a company is going to have to 
figure out before they even respond to, to a data subject access request. Uh, and then what kind of data do they have? How many data repositories have they found all the data? Um, because, you know, one of the things I was just talking about this morning with a, an, an expert is there is personally identifiable information on my laptop, on, on an on a employee's workstation, on removable media. And, you know, most IT organizations do not sync that stuff. They don't know what's there. So they can't respond in a manner that says, yes, we found all of your data and via your request, we deleted it. Um, because hmm. they don't know. They don't know what's on my laptop. Right. Right. So you, you have a, a salesperson, you know, out in the field who's gathering customer information, hasn't necessarily synced it all with the, with home base, then that, that's an interesting dilemma. Oh, it's, it's, it's going to be a huge liability for companies because, you know, these, this, this kind of stuff, it's already being used as an offensive weapon by, by individuals, especially around GDPR and the, and the California mm. law that was early on. You know, they could flood a company with, with requests for uh, information. Um, and, and then, you know, they can, they can say, well, delete it all. And then later they can come back and say, you know, prove to me you deleted it all. By the way, did you delete that stuff on backup tapes? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No law addresses that. You know, I, I recall when GDPR came online, there was a lot of thought that it was going to become kind of a, a global lowest common denominator, if you will. You know, that because if you wanted to do business uh, globally, you had to comply with this. So it would it would become the, the privacy blanket that would cover the globe. Um to what degree has that happened? And, and is there a possibility of a, a lowest common denominator here stateside? Great question. Uh, no, it, 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 the, the hope was, like you said, that it, it could have acted as the template uh, for everything. But, you know, as, mm. as, as you probably realize with different governments and different, different uh, government employees <laughs> and different cultures and all kinds of stuff, it quickly started to diverge. Um, and so they're not, I mean, Brazil's, you know, country, countrywide privacy law is not like China's, it's not like Australia's, it's not like India's. You know, they have things in common, but you, what, what I refer to is, could we pick, even the United States, could we pick a high watermark law like California's and say, if we meet that one, we meet all of them? Uh, mm -hmm. No. Uh, again, because of the 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 derivations of of the laws, you know, one one says that a data controller is this; the other one slightly differs, which means there is some slight difference. In fact, one I was just talking about. I did a podcast with the uh, with the state senator in Utah who authored the new just last week Utah Consumer hmm. Privacy Act, and um, the the other three state laws currently in effect, California, Colorado, and Virginia, uh, basically say that, you know, um, if a data, if a citizen asks you what kind of data they have on you and, and they want you to delete it, if there's no regulatory or, or e-discovery legal reason not to, then you have to delete it all. Utah's basically says the company only has to delete that data that they got directly from that citizen publicly available personally identifiable information does not need to be deleted. Hmm. And that that is in many of the other state bills that have not made it into law yet. So you're going you're gonna to be looking at what amounts to a, 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 a difference in what do I have to delete 
based on where this right. data subject is sitting when they requested I do something. Well, and define public. Yes. Yes. Did you, I mean, and I was talking to the to Utah Center, and, and I said, does that mean that data that a company bought from a data broker is not subject to those rights? And he said, absolutely. Hmm. Only wow. that data they got from that <laughs> form they filled out to download that white paper. Now, that's not all the states, by the way, but that, that's the kind of differences you're looking at, the complexity you're looking at with these laws. So how are companies actually doing this? I mean, how are they making their best effort, taking their best shot at being in compliance here as, as it seems like we're heading down a path of more and more complexity? Well, in reality, they're not. Um, and and like, like the early days of the GDPR back in 2018, many companies uh, and organizations just sat back and said, I'm not going to spend any money until I see how this is going to how this is going to, you know, happen over the next several years. You know, I might, mm. I might go spend $3 million on, on some software and hardware that, that, you know, doesn't meet their requirements. So I'm going to see what happens. And, and in the first year of the GDPR, you know, the, the authorities were not aggressive at all. There was only, I think, I don't know, half a, you know, couple, couple hundred million in, um, in uh, actual fines. And then, the following year, it went up by 10%. The following year, it went up by... But last year, in 2021, it jumped massively, the, the activity and the aggressiveness in it. Last year, they, they uh, fined companies over a billion euros for just GDPR um, um, noncompliance and in various things, mm-hmm. little, little things, not, not major things. I mean, there was one that just came out where... One, one legal decision just came out that said, you know, this, this law firm in Ireland, and I, I, it, I might have that country long, but basically was uh, their website was not asking if they could place a cookie on the, on the, uh, uh, on the uh, individual's laptop. They were assuming that if they were looking to the, the website, then they assumed a, a consent. So they did it and the GDPR fined them a large amount of money. Um, and, and that's the kind of aggressiveness that we're starting to see now. So in, in the states, companies – right now we have four laws. California's law, the CCPA slash CPRA, is actually in effect. Um, Virginia, uh, Colorado, and Utah's don't become active until 2023. So there's a little bit of time. GDPR has been in effect in, in quite a while. But then you look at – you know. Uh, uh, Canada has several privacy laws that, that have been active for years. Uh, Brazil's is active and, and China and all these other ones. So um, I think most companies are just standing back. I wouldn't say they're ignoring it, but they're watching it to see what happens. Um, and, and I think many of them are, are at least in the United States, are, are hoping that the federal government will you know, get their act together. But I, th- I think we're, we're a ways from that. But there, you know, many companies have liability around this issue right now. And again, when, when you start seeing external law firms, you know, using these laws as an offensive tactic to go after companies, uh, just to kind of ring their bell a little bit and, and see how they react, that is going to, that is going to get lots of uh, chief information security officers and chief privacy officers and CEOs very nervous because, uh, you know, the fines on these bills can be massive. You know, I, I, when California's, it's like $700 to $2,500, but that's per record. 
That's not per breach. That's per, you know, uh, gee, my, my data was breached mm-hmm. as well as a thousand other consumers. And that's a thousand times 2000 or 2,500. In, in Colorado, where I'm based, uh, the minimum fine is $20,000 per record. Uh, so you can, you could see that, you know, the liability, the risk is there. So companies have to really be be looking at this, but you know, a company, uh, you know, somewhere that that is holding ten thousand um, personally identifiable information records on Colorado um, citizens, they put them out of business overnight. Yeah, I think about you know, it's just a, I don't know, an an, an unsuspecting mom and pop who's making their good faith best effort. Exactly, you know, you, know, you got a you got a website on on WordPress that that you know uh, has the ability to to you know down or or take take information and and sell things. Uh, all of a sudden, you're you're potentially subject to to privacy laws around the world. Because you don't know who's signing on your website to buy something until until they place the order, and then all of a sudden you got the stuff. Uh, so it, it is it is a massive massive liability that I, countries still need to get their arms around. And what is this going to do to the the cost of running a business? It, like you say, even a small business, but even the even you know the medium sized to very large ones, you're going to have to worry. Either a company is going to have to things in place that say, you know, we're not going to collect any kind of personal information, period, uh, which is going to be hard to do if you want to keep doing business. Or they're going to have to, they're going to have to take a risk or they're going to have to spend huge amounts of money uh, with consultants and, and, and lawyers and all kinds of things. So it's, it's going to cause the price of everything to go up just to protect against these privacy laws. Ben, what do you think? I'm sympathetic uh, when it comes to the uh, matter of compliance fatigue because mm-hmm. his job sounds really miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I've done compliance work and it's tedious. Uh, there are a lot of sources of law in the world that we live in. Federal law, state law, local regulation, international law, international treaties. Right. And if you have responsibility for your organization avoiding legal liability, that's a lot of work, uh, and I completely understand that. From the public's perspective, it's interesting, and he mentioned this, how these laws, even though they're limited in their effect to the specific geographic areas to which they apply, end up having broader application. Because if you have to change your practices to comply with GDPR, and you have to change your practices to comply with CCPA, you're going to change your practices generally. You're generally mm-hmm. not going to have separate regimes in terms of uh, privacy protection for the other 49 states in the United States right. or uh, for the other countries uh, in which you sell that data. Hmm. So I'm certainly sympathetic uh, to compliance officers, the poor attorneys who actually have to do this work of these organizations. But I think from a public policy perspective, it's interesting that the reach of these laws extends beyond jurisdictional boundaries. Mm-hmm. So with something like GDPR, it, it extends the reach beyond the EU just almost as a matter of convenience, right? right exactly. I mean, if they're going to have to comply with the GDPR regulations, they'd rather not have separate regulatory regimes for U.S. customers and European customers. Mm-hmm. That's why in 2018 and 2019, 
we all got a million emails saying uh, our terms and conditions have been revised to comply right. with the GDPR. <laughs> we have to have agreed to cookies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, my, but, my- but I mean, the case could be made that that's not fair, that, they, that the EU shouldn't be able to have that global reach, uh, be, you know, because of just because it's easier, uh, that that's not the way it should work for those of us who are outside of the EU. Right? I mean, it really isn't fair because we have no democratic recourse, small d democratic. If yeah. we didn't like what the EU does, unfortunately, unless you have some citizenship arrangement I don't know about, we can't uh, vote for members of the EU parliament, right. uh, which means we have no impact on these changes. You and I live in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't vote for California state legislators. Uh, so we have no impact in what happens to the CCPA. Yeah. Uh, But that's the nature of how this legal field is evolving. Mm -hmm. What would help solve this problem in the U.S. is federal legislation. But I think (laughs) our interviewee uh, expressed the general frustration as to the fact that that's not happening and gave some insight into why that's not happening. Yeah. Uh, So I don't know how many times we could say on on this episode and every other that it is incumbent upon our federal uh, legislators to make things uniform— Help your fellow compliance officers mm-hmm. uh, and just have one set of data privacy uh, rules and regulations that apply across the country. Right. <laughs> uh, I feel like once that happens, we can quit our day jobs. Yeah, yeah. We've been, uh, uh, we've been banging that drum for a long time now. The idea of a functioning Congress is just adorable, isn't it? It, it sure is. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. It would be really nice if we had a, a right. functional national right. legislature, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, well— All right. Well, again, our thanks to Bill Tolson. He's from Archive 360. We do appreciate him taking the time for us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>